Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Job Speakers. My name is Rob Hendrickson. I'm excited to be here for our third episode. If you've listened to the first two and have joined us for this one, I can't thank you enough. If you're new to the podcast and this is the first you've listened to, uh, I really hope you enjoy it. I'm also excited to share the news that Job Speakers is now available through all the major channels, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Our featured job today is an ancient one, and that alone is intriguing. The fact that this job is essentially the same as it's always been, whether it were thousands of years ago or last week. With that in mind, let's move over to the conversation with someone who knows exactly what it means to shoe horses and to be a farrier. His name is Bruce Buxton. Bruce Buxton, welcome to the Job Speakers Podcast. Rob, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you asked me. Um, it's, it's a real privilege to get on your podcast. Well, thanks, buddy. Before we jump in, I'd like to recognize uh, Bruce. He himself has launched a podcast recently called uh, The Graybeard. Is that right, Bruce? Yeah, it's called The Graybeard Podcast. It's all about uh, you know learning about how to succeed and how to achieve great things, even if you're a little older. You know, just a real quick a real quick shout out to that. You know, I think. As an older guy, 57 myself, you know, you, you, you kind of have this built-in complacency going on. You got the things you need and you get enough food and sex and money and all that. And sometimes it leads to complacency. So that's that's the idea behind my podcast is just to kind of help people pull out of that uh, complacency. Well, good. I recommend it. Go check it out. I know it's out there and available because I found it. But, uh, well, let's, let's jump in. I want to say just a few words here. Um, I know, Bruce, you have several jobs. I know you do business development for a geospatial um, software application company. Um, I, that, that's I know right. You, you, you probably um, dip your toes in a few waters, but I really wanted to focus in on a job that you were doing when we met, and that is the job of shoeing horses as a farrier. I will tell you, I have asked about five people. They know what a farrier is, and I'm batting a thousand because no one does. So I think that's fascinating. I think it's also fascinating because it's probably one of the oldest jobs in the world and it hasn't changed a whole lot. Right. Right. And can I tell you a quick story about the word farrier? Please do. Uh, several decades ago, I was going to get a loan at a small bank in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, the bank officer, the loan officer kept me in the lobby for quite some time. And then all of a sudden they shuttled me in and, and um, I was you know, talking with him about what I wanted the loan for. And, and he just was treating me like I was this, uh, you know, golden boy. I couldn't believe it. You know, here's, I was this lowly horseshoer from Gettysburg and I had really nothing to offer. My balance sheet was terrible. And I, I, it was just, it was, there was not much there. And he was just treating me like gold. And so we get to the end of the conversation. He looks at me and says, Mr. Buxton, how long have you dealt in furs? <laughs> I kind of laughed and I said, you might've read that wrong. I'm not a furrier. I'm a farrier. <laughs> and he kind of excused, <laughs> he excused himself and then sent his assistant in to, to chase me away. <laughs> That's awesome. I have well, a few experiences like that because people don't know what a farrier is and it kind of catches them by surprise. Do this for me. Summarize what the job is, please. Farrier is a, a fancy way of saying horse shoer, someone that shoes horses. I got a good story about that too. But, um, and, and so what, what I do is I, I look, understand, I look at the horse and the confirmation, I look at the way their foot's built, and then I craft steel, aluminum, titanium shoes, and fasten them to the bottom of the foot in a way that promotes 
um, the horse walking with balance and being able to perform to their, uh, their, their very optimum abilities. Okay, thanks for that. Now do the following for me. In sort of rapid fire succession, give me a rundown of the major jobs you've had since you started working. I know you're the graybeard, so there may be some years in there. But just sort of, I do this because I want, I want job speaker listeners to get a sense for, for people's journeys and how they ended up doing you know, what we're focused on today in this case. Okay, so uh, in high school, I worked as a, as a way ticket runner for a construction company. And then for that same construction company, I worked as a uh, contract administrator. Um, at the same time, I was a, uh, a stalker at HEB in Austin, Texas. I stalked the uh, lunch meats. And then also I was a security guard at a, a, a engineering firm up in the hills there in Austin. And then I started my own little wind washing company, which that was a real, really good success for a little while. And I had a really good run at that. I worked as a assistant to the president for a company called Austin Paving Company, learned how to, how to estimate paving jobs, went from there to the Driggs Corporation in um, outside of Washington, D.C. as an area manager for this big heavy highway construction company. Wasn't making enough there really for my growing family. So I, I worked part-time as a tow truck dispatcher in Springfield, um, Virginia. And you lived in, you've lived in that area before, so you know how, how important dispatchers are. And, <laughs> and then I, wor I worked uh, selling uh, aftermarket truck parts for a friend of mine. Had a big route all throughout the Northeast from Richmond to Bangor. And uh, after that, I worked as an estimator kind of area manager for another construction company called BCI up in, uh, in Baltimore. At that point, I lost that job. Um, I was too highly paid for the, the job I did, and it just didn't work out very well. And so um, I decided, I went home and I told my wife, I said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to learn how to shoe horses. And she looked at me like I had two heads you know, three heads, maybe, you know, where, where'd that come from? And I'll, you know, someday we could talk about where that came from, but I just thought it would be a good way to, to live my life. So I started, I apprenticed for about six months and then went out on my own shoeing horses. And I did that for full time for about 10 years, at which point I met you when you and I were working for a mutual friend in the geospatial business. And, um, and then I went down to shoeing part-time about six years after that time and have worked in geospatial sales and business development for four different companies ever since. So I, I've been a bit of a journeyman. I've learned a lot along the way. I learned a lot about business and about sales and about operations. So it, it, for me, even though it makes my wife crazy, it's been a good way to live. What, um, how old were you when you decided that you were gonna move uh, into being a farrier? 31, I was 31 years old. Okay. What, um, what, you probably have a story here, but why? Like, what was it, like, were you raised with horses or was it just, like, tell, tell the story of what, the why. I have a niece named Kaylin and I asked her, I said, if you were going to talk to someone who puts shoes on horses, what would you ask? And she said, ask them why. Okay. Yeah, I can answer that pretty easily. I did have a horse growing up, but that horse didn't have any shoes on. I loved horses. That was a, a big part of my childhood from about eight to 12 had a great, a great little horse named Nellie. And I didn't have anything to do with horses until I was about 29 or so. And, and I was on my way from Baltimore to Frederick, Maryland for a, for a meeting. And it was a collections meeting, you know, where I had to 
collect $250,000 from this guy who was building a subdivision. So we're going to pull off and we'd go bankrupt, you know? And I thought, Oh man, this really stinks. I don't want to live like this. <laughs> anyway, I was passing by this big farm at the time and it had a bunch of draft horses. And so I stopped and played with the draft horses for a while and talked to the farm owner. It was a blast. And well, this happened more frequently. It happened on and off then for the next two years where I just kind of deny that I had a day job and I'd stop and play with the horses for a little while. It's not very admirable, but that's what, that's the real story. So when I, when I got laid off from this construction company, I thought, you know, I just, I just want to play with horses. There's one thing I know where you can make money being with horses. That's not just spending money. And that would be either being a vet or a farrier. And I couldn't be a vet. I wasn't educated to do that. So I thought I can learn how to shoe horses. And that's what I did. Cool. Did you need a tr need training uh, to do this, or is this something that you just learn by kind of watching and doing? There, there are three ways to become a farrier. One, your dad can be a farrier, and you can grow up around it and just kind of get it by osmosis. Uh, two, you can go to school. There's blacksmith and farrier schools all over the country, and you can pay an arm and a leg to spend six months to learn how to shoe horses. Or you can apprentice with a master farrier, which doesn't cost you anything, but you're poor for a while. So I chose the latter one because it's the hardest way to do it, <laughs> obviously. And uh, I worked for a, a really great master farrier named Brian Koch from Silver Run, Maryland. Um, and the story there is I, I went up to his farm one day and I said, I was told that you'd be the best person to learn how to shoe horses from. And he looked at me and he, he didn't say anything. And I said, do you think you can take me on? And he looked at me and said, what can you do for me? And I said, well, I know how to sell stuff. He said, well, I just got over three broken ribs and a broken wrist and I haven't shooed for six months. I've lost all my customers. If you can get me enough work, then, you know, we'll go, we'll go do this thing. So I spent two weeks out drumming up work for the guy and over a six month period of time, got him back into action again, just in time to walk in there one day and he's sitting on the, on the couch. And I said, Brian, it's time. we got to go, go to work. And he said, well, I, I can't work. I, I got gout in my wrist and I, I can't work now. I've got to have surgery. And so I'm off for a year. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he, he said, well, go shoe a horse. So that's what, that's where it started. Wow. How many horses did you need to shoe before you felt like you were good at it? Um, let's see last year, probably <laughs> now I've been shooing for 27 years and I learned something every time I get under a horse. Um, that's, that's no lie. There's some, some new thing that hits you or something that you realize if you're thinking about it, I did, I think that it took me about three years before I was feeling comfortable enough to talk about myself as a professional. And, um, and I, I went through a lot of continuing, continuing education at that point, tried really hard to, to educate myself to the level that I could call myself a real pro. And um, so three years, I got to feeling comfortable. And then maybe after about five to seven years, I felt like I could promote myself a little bit more. All right, now I'm going to move to do something new. I haven't tried this with anyone yet. It's called the true, uh, it's called the true or false fun round. Okay. Oh, I, like be, I like being a guinea pig. Let's yeah, go. Well, that's, we're going to do it. So I'm going to say something to you and you say true or false. Okay, you ready? I'm with you. You have been kicked while shoeing a horse. True. A horse doesn't know when it has new shoes. False. If you feed a horse and your hand isn't flat to their muzzle, they will bite your fingers off. False. 
That's I'm I'm pausing because I was taught that that would happen <laughs> since I was little. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say it's not. It couldn't be uncomfortable, but they 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 wouldn't do anything but make them black and blue. They're not going to bite them off. Okay. True or false? Horses are as smart as dogs. Oh, so false. So false. They're not as smart as dogs. So false. A, a horse has the br- a brain the size of a walnut. Okay. Okay. There's no way they can be as smart as a dog. Okay. Go ahead. And yeah. here's the last one. While shoeing uh, the back uh, hooves of a horse, you have been pooped on. <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> true. So true. My, first, my first true or false fun round did not disappoint. I learned two <laughs> things um, and was, was amused by the rest. So thanks for that. You're so very that, welcome. I'm, I'm glad I could entertain you. Absolutely. So let's go back to uh, being a farrier. Here's a question I'd like to know. In your opinion, what's the difference between someone who's a great farrier and just a good or a marginal one? Wow. Okay. There's, that's a multifaceted question. Let's just start with the business aspect. Um, the, you know, shoeing horses is a business. It's a sole proprietorship and you need to learn how to run a business. So you need to know sales and marketing. You need to know accounting. Uh, you need to understand operations management, um, and you need to be able to to make decisions about how your business is run and make the hard decisions about how business is run. So I know there's a lot of farriers out there that aren't businessmen, and their practices show that. You know, they, they, you can't rub two dimes together. So, so that's, one, that's one thing. Technically, what, what makes a really good farrier from uh, a poor farrier starts with instinct. My, my departed father-in-law, when he found out that I was going to shoe horses, it, it kind of concerned him because he loved his daughter and didn't want her to be the, the wife of a, of a poor horseshoer. And he was from Arizona, and all the horseshoers there were poor. And uh, he, he decided he would come with me every chance he got. So when they'd fly out from Arizona, he'd get in the truck and go with me shoeing. And it wasn't too long after he started doing that that he looked at looked at us around the, the dinner table one day and he said, "You know, I believe Bruce uh, was endowed in heaven with the ability to understand what to do with a horse. It just seems to be really instinct to him." And I didn't think of it that way before that time, but as I've thought about it a lot, I didn't have to do a lot to get up to speed. I it really everything I've done as a shoer has come very naturally to me. And, uh, and it's been a very intuitive kind of exercise for me. So I think a lot of people have to fight against a lot of things or, you know, stuff a lot of knowledge in their brain that I never had to do. One time I was in a, in a barn, one place where this, this guy, we were both at two ends of the barn and the other shoer was shoeing one horse, I was shoeing another. He finished before I did. And he had this massive reputation. He was just just gigantic personality and horseshoer, just the best. And so he started, and I'd been shooing maybe two years, and he comes down the other end of the barn, and he just stood there and watched me for a while. And he looked at me, and he said, why did you do that? And I said, what do you mean, why did I do that? He said, why did you do what you just did right there? And I said, well, I don't, I'm not exactly sure, but I know it works. He said, you can't do that. And I said, what do you mean I can't do that? He said, you can't know how to do that. He said, I've been shooing for over 30 years, and I just learned how to do that last year. You can't know that. So I, that really helped me to see, you know, I do have something. I have a gift. I've been given something from wherever. In my, in my case, I believe it's from, from God. But I have this gift that I, that I use. Now, 
you have to always add on to those things, continuing education. I've been to Virginia Tech. I've been to um, Kentucky, uh, uh, to Churchill Downs, to different places for clinics. And, and I've really taken time to educate myself on the, just, you know, the science of what makes a healthy hoof and a healthy, you know, healthy limbs on horses. And that's paid off huge dividends as well. Is there a difference between what you do and what farriers who shoe racehorses do? Technically, I mean, basically, no. We do the same thing. We put we put a shoe on a horse that's supposed to optimize performance and comfort for the horse. Um, they're a lot faster, and they're they're a quite a bit less. Well, at at the medium levels, right? Not at not at the uh, you know, Barbaro levels or the Sea Biscuit levels. Those guys are spending you know three or four hours every time they shoe that horse because there's a lot at stake there. But on the, you know, Char Charleston Downs or, you know, Santa Anita level, those guys are just, they're just blowing through horses one every 15 minutes. It takes me about 45 minutes to an hour to do a really good technical job shoeing a horse. I check balance. I check length. I check, I check all kinds of things as I go, you know, adding to my intuitive touch, adding to that you know, some, some real science that I've learned to make sure I do the very best job possible. So, so basically it's the same thing, but I think that, that, uh, where I shoe performance horses that are showing uh, sometimes at the ground pre-level in, in jumping, you know, I spend an awful lot of time, you know, making sure I get it right. I had the privilege of accompanying you when you shoot a horse for the first time. In fact, I just found a photo of that, uh, because I, I'm, I always ask my guests for photos and I thought I might've been able to use it. It was a crap photo, but it reminded me one thing I felt when I saw you, and that was how much gear and tools you have in the back of your pickup truck, right? Because you don't just have some nails and a hammer, right? If I remember correctly, don't you have an oven sitting in the back of your pickup? Is that right? I, I have what's called a forge, and it's uh, powered by propane, right? So I have a, a force propane force, um, forge um, that I use to heat the shoes up. So that they're easier to bend. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to raise my right arm. It would be, you know, too crippled at this point. Um, you know, hitting, moving steel, cold steel with a hammer is is a very difficult proposition. So uh, I I use the forge to to shape the shoes because every foot has a different shape. So that's probably something your listeners don't know. It's not just a you know horseshoe type foot on every horse. Every horse. You know, some horses have a round side and a flat side, and some's big and round, some are small and long. So you have to shape the shoe to fit the foot. So yeah, I've got I've got a forge in there. I've got two drill presses. I've got uh, a, a large high speed grinder. I've got you know, Boku drawers and things where I put glue and I put all kinds of stuff in. So yeah, there's a lot of gear in there. I didn't always have all that gear. It took me four or five years to collect it. And now the stuff that I have in here, I'm 26, 27 years into shoeing, I've got quite a bit of gear in my truck. Here's a question that I know you could probably expound on, but why do horses need shoes to begin with? <laughs> well, that's a good one. There's a good book. I, I, I wish I remembered the name of it, but it talked about how um, back in the, in the, um, the night, night period, in the medieval period in, in uh, England is when they started uh, putting iron horseshoes on. They've always put leather horseshoes on things in, in Genghis Khan time. They had leather leather moccasins on horses. But back in, in, in jolly old England in the day, they were getting these big horses, these, these larger horses 
from um, from Arabia, and they bred for a large horse, for a great big horse, which we now know are cart horses or draft horses, and they get them larger and larger so that they could, you know, carry a knight around with all of his uh, armor on, and it's a very heavy thing to do, and horses, you know, that's a lot of weight for a horse to carry around, so they, so they bred these horses bigger and bigger, and as they bred them bigger and bigger, their feet got weaker and weaker, and they had to figure out a solution to keep those horses sound over time so that the knights could ride into battle and not have a lame horse. So that's where they started putting iron horseshoes on. At least that's my understanding. I'm sure someone could correct me and say, well, we found iron horseshoes, you know, in the, in the red cliffs of Egypt. And, you know, maybe that's the case, but for my world, from the tradition I come from, it's, uh, you know, medieval England and keeping the horse sound for the knights. Is there a certain disposition that would serve someone being a farrier well, whether they're doing it or they're considering um, becoming a farrier as a profession? Uh, I think people would disagree with me, but I think you have to like horses. For the, the, the one common denominator of the good ones, or the ones that are good, they like horses. They genuinely like the animal. And I genuinely like horses. I love, I love horses. It's something that I love being around them. I love what they do for me personally. There are a lot of shoers out there that don't like horses and you can tell, you know, you, you, when you walk into a barn and there's commotion and beatings happening, you know, that, that fairy doesn't like horses very much. I don't care who he is. That's not a good thing or who, who he or she is. There's a lot of, a lot of women farriers as well. So mm -hmm. I'd say that the, the most important thing to be a successful fairy is to like horses. Did you say beatings happening? Oh, there's a lot of beatings that happen with horseshoers. We have a, a really terrible reputation, actually. Um, I think horseshoers over the years have gotten that reputation very fairly because they'll wait until the owner leaves the barn and then they'll just beat the daylights out of a horse because the horse isn't doing it the way they want to. Now, keep in mind, I go back to where I talked about the walnut-sized brain. You know, they don't know things that, that they – horses don't reason, like – my daughter, she's cute and everything, but she says, oh, that horse isn't happy. And I just want to say, no, horses don't get happy. That's not the kind of thing that they get, right? <laughs> they get scared. They get hungry. <laughs> they get cold, but they don't get happy. <laughs> For all of you out there who have horses, um, maybe, you know, a, a hidden camera, Wi-Fi camera might be in order to make sure your farrier's treating your, uh, treating your horse right when, you, when you're not there. Here's I have so many funny anecdotes about horseshoeing. It's funny. Like if a, if an owner comes to you and says, Hey, my horse is really bad, you know, then he's probably not so bad because they're probably overstating the issue, right? They're probably a little bit, they're a little bit anxious because most farriers are going to beat their horse up if he doesn't stand upright. Right. So if you're, but, but if an owner comes to you and says, you go ahead and you discipline that horse, anything you need to, you hit him with your rasp, you, you know, kick him, whatever you need to do. I, I just kind of smile because I know the minute I lay a hand on that horse, they're going to fire me. I mean, that, that is absolutely true. You, they'd, they'd say that over and over. You discipline them if you need to, but you might, all you'd have to do is lay a hand on the horse and they're not calling back. <laughs> okay, Bruce, we're, we're almost out of time, but I know you're a storyteller being the gray beard that you are. Could you tell us uh, a story that comes to mind uh, from your many experiences shoeing? Sure, sure. I, there's one that comes to mind. It's not funny, but it's really, I think it's a great story. Um, picture a beautiful fall day in Maryland along the shores of the Potomac River, back in an idyllic farm. I was shoeing all by myself. It was a brand new little 
barn that they had back in the back of the property. And so no one was back there with me. I was back there by myself. And it was a new horse, something new to me. I'd never seen him before. I pulled him out of the stall and put him in the aisleway and put the cross ties on his, on his halter. And he was a big, tall, 17-hand chestnut horse, just huge, just a great big old animal. And it, it, I was just loving the day. It was beautiful. I was, I was happy to be alive. I loved the horse. He was behaving well. And I got under him and started to shoe him. And I don't know what happened. Something happened outside in front. And the horse went straight up in the air. And I was holding his front foot. And I, I'm totally clumsy, Rob. I'm really a clumsy person. And I didn't catch my balance. And I just went straight down on the ground while the horse was still up in the air. And so I kind of landed on my back with my face up, up in the air. And the horse's feet were coming right down at my head. And they had these great big steel shoes on, you know, about six inches wide and deep. And those, those shoes were coming right down toward my head. And they landed one on one side of my ear, the other on the other side of my ear, like I could feel the wind going past. And the noise was deafening because it was on this concrete aisleway. And he came down with all of his weight on those two feet and then lifted right back up again where he came off of. And I had the presence of mind to roll out from underneath him over to the side of the aisleway. And he came down and he snorted for a while. And jigged around a little while and I was just laying there and it was just dead silent and I could hear the birds tweeting and I thought to myself you came so close to dying you have no idea and I must have laid there probably for a half hour before I before I decided I was going to move I, I mean it just was the most surreal experience I've ever had and uh, I'll never forget that as long as I live. It, it, it made me recognize that every day is a gift. It made me recognize that I, I have to be grateful for, for everybody I have in my life and every, every breath I take. You know, it's not that much different than driving down the road and getting killed by someone that T-bones you. It's, you know, it's the same kind of activity. You're doing something that has inherent risk. And, um, and so I learned a lot that day. But that that's something I can never separate from my psyche for sure. Okay. Final question, my friend. I ask this to every guest. If you could offer career advice for the whole world to hear, whether it is about uh, being a farrier or not, what would that advice be? Well, the very most important thing for a career is to show up and do your job well. All the education in the world can't help you if you can't show up and do your job well. So that's one piece. I can't give one piece of advice, but let me just give a random smattering of, because I've got a lot of these things. I've got five kids, right? And so they all get this all the time from me. Um, but you got to show up and you got to do your job well. Certainly education is important, but if you can't do those two things, you're not getting anywhere. The other, the other piece of advice is I, I just, everybody needs to understand that work is work. It will suck sometimes. There's absolutely no question about it. You won't like the people you're working for. It'll be uncomfortable. You'll be unhappy. You won't get paid enough. That always happens. It will never be different than that. And the sooner you get your head around that, the sooner you'll be happy in your work because you can recognize when things are good, you can, you can be good with that. And when things are bad, you can just you know, suck it up and, and look through it. It's just not that tough. So maybe those are the two pieces of advice I, I'd give if I, if I had to give somebody who wanted to, you know, to have some work advice, so to speak. Okay. Well, that's great. Bruce, thank you for your time. 
It's been a pleasure. Um, we, we reconnected after many years and it's already been a lot of fun. Check out The Graybeard, everyone. It's a great podcast. You get to hear a lot more from this man and his stories and his, his wisdom. Uh, I believe before too long, I'll have the honor of being a guest on that podcast, which of course- Yeah, look, the- look for Rob Hendrickson as a, a special guest on my podcast. We have yet to negotiate terms, but when, <laughs> when, when we get that all decided, then I'm going to have Rob on it. And uh, it's going to be a special episode on The Graybeard Podcast. Looking forward to it, my friend. Have a great rest of your day. Uh, Thank you again, and until next time, be well. It's my pleasure. Good to see you again. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the show and enjoyed Bruce Buxton as our guest. Remember what I said in one of my prior podcasts, this is for you. If there's a guest you want to hear or a question you want me to have answered, go to www.jobspeakers.com and drop me a line. I want this podcast to be uh, meaningful for everyone out there. Whether you're looking for a job as a job seeker, changing a job as a job changer, or you're just in the category of job curious. Have a great week and be good, everyone. Take care. Bye now.